Christ the King. And we've gathered here today to behold him. And so as we now approach his sacred and holy word, let's pray that we would once again reflect upon the beauty of Christ taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do love you and we're so grateful that we can come to this manger scene and marvel at the arrival of this Christ child. Help us, God, to reflect intentionally and purposefully upon this incredible miracle, God, in a manner that allows it to change our hearts, our souls, and our minds. God, we know that that change is only possible when we come to your word in a humble submission with an eager anticipation to, to listen and to hear your voice and to be shaped by your presence. So be with us now, God. Fill this room, fill our hearts, fill our souls, and our minds with your glory and your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you. You all can be seated. I do love that song, What Child Is This? And uh, in many ways, I guess kind of in an innocent and random way, it, it reminds me of some of those just kind of common questions we find ourselves uh, asking in random human encounters and experiences, right? I mean, it's, it's an eloquent way to just ask the simple question, who is it, right? Who is this child? And think about all the different life situations and encounters where you are forced to kind of ask yourself that question, who is this? You know what I mean by that? Like, I mean, in a very simple way, it used to be that you most commonly ask yourself the question, who is this, when you got a phone call. Of course, I'm referring to the pre-caller ID era, which many of you weren't alive to experience. I was, however. And it was kind of fun, to be honest. Like, the phone would ring, and you had no idea who it was. Uh, you remember those days? And it was almost like it kind of put you on the edge of your seat, and, and you'd get excited. I know in our house, uh, my sister and I, we would race to see who could answer the phone first to figure out the answer to that question, who is this that's calling? And then caller ID comes along nowadays. Nobody's, a, nobody's asking themselves that question anymore when your phone rings, right? You, you identify every caller with your contacts or with caller ID, and even spam phone calls are recognizable for you now. It's like your phone company has gone to the point to say, you know what, don't even answer this one. You don't even need to worry about it, right? We don't ever ask that question anymore. We don't answer with emails, right? Emails, you have that question of who it's from immediately as it hits your inbox. You don't ask yourself that question when it comes to regular mail. You've got the return address there for you to figure out who sent it. Uh, you don't have to ask that question for social media, for sure, right? Because that allows you to build profiles and put your names and your pictures and what you like and your hobbies and your interests. Everything is, this is who I am, right? Nobody has to ask themselves the question, who is this really anymore? So, except for maybe one particular encounter and experience. And that's when somebody shows up at your house. I'm not talking about when somebody shows up expectedly. We're not talking about the planned dinner. We're not talking about the, the predetermined arrangement where you know somebody's coming over. I'm talking about the unexpected doorbell ring. You know that moment, right? The pop-in. How do you feel about the pop-in, right? I think there's a variety of different experiences. Like picture it for yourself today. Let's say you go home after church, you get in some comfortable clothes, sit down and watch the cowboys or do some things around the house, read a book, and all of a sudden the doorbell rings. How do you feel, right? What kind of emotions are stirred within you? I think my kids serve as an as a appropriate template for the different reactions that one might have for the pop-in and the unexpected doorbell ring. My oldest son, he tends to respond with some form of hesitant uh, caution, right? It's like you can almost see the, the worry on his face when he hears the doorbell ring because he knows that whoever's there could interrupt whatever he's doing, right? It's like I've, I'm reading a book, I'm playing a video game, and I, I don't like this unanticipated change. And so for him, the doorbell is not exactly a welcomed sound, 
Uh, my daughter kind of varies, kind of depends on the moment, depends on the situation. Sometimes she's excited to hear it. Sometimes she's very focused on something else that she's doing. But I've noticed in this season in particular, what st- typically stirs her interest is the fact that it, she's usually waiting to see if it's an Amazon package, especially this time of year. And so what's motivating her to go to the door is not so much who is there, but what is there. Uh, now, my youngest son, when, when, when the doorbell rings, it is nothing short of sheer excitement and enthusiasm. I mean, it is like, yes, and he gets up and he runs to the door and starts unlocking it. And we're like, wait, you know, it could be a stranger. Let mom and dad come first, you know. And so he meets it with tremendous enthusiasm. And so there's a good example of the different emotional responses when you hear the unexpected doorbell ring. What's yours, right? You can probably think through some of those things. And, and typically, you're beginning to answer that question. Who is it, right? Now, what's interesting is that once you open that door, uh, you're gonna have one of two things develop. You're gonna either recognize the person or you're not. And, and once you open the door, the inevitable next question that is so frequently attached to the first one of who is this is why are you here, right? Now, if you recognize the person, whether you recognize them or not, will really determine the intensity with which you try to answer the second question, right? Because if you know who it is, you're not just gonna immediately say, well, what are you doing here, right? You just, hey, welcome, come on in. Let me get you some water, have a seat. You know, you, you, you welcome them openly. If you don't recognize the person, you barely open the door, you step on the front porch, you kind of let it be known, I'm not really interested in this, and you prepare to hear some form of a sales pitch as someone begins to convince you that you need magazines or new windows or a new alarm or whatever, right? And all the while you're thinking to yourself, how long do I need to let this go before I tell this person I'm not interested? Uh, we've learned that Jennifer is not good at those conversations. She'll buy whatever they're selling, right? So we've learned at this point, she's got to say, let me go get my husband or come back when my husband's back because we bought magazine subscriptions. She hates telling people no in that situation. And so you, you really kind of depend, whether you know the person or not, how quickly you eventually say, well, how can I help you? Which is just a very natural way of asking, why are you here? And even if you know the person and you've welcomed into your home, that's still in the back of your mind. Why are you here? And it may take some time before you ask that question, but the point is, until you have that question answered, the visit doesn't really make sense. Whether you've already answered who this is or not, you don't really understand the, the nature of the visit until you answer that question, why are you here? That's the question we're gonna ask today. Right, we're seeing what child is this, and we declare, well, it's Christ the King. But the question that we have to ask every Christmas season, it's not enough just to come to the manger and say, well, who is it? We have to also ask, why is he here? And that question gives sense and purpose and meaning to the whole encounter of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to navigate this a little bit. Right? We've been in this this uh, Christ hymn, verses five through 11 of the second chapter of Philippians. And as we've said before, the first four va- uh, verses of chapter two really set the tone for the conversation. It, it's a call towards humility, it's a call towards unity, and, and you see that admonition from Paul to the church to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves, right? That's the, the call to humility that sets the tone. And so then, Uh, Paul points to Jesus as this example, right? In your relationships to one another, verse five, you should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And and everything that follows speaks to why Christ is this example of humility. 
And so for the last few weeks, we've looked at verses 6 and 7 that really kind of speak that first question of who is this? Right, well, this is, this is Jesus. He was the very nature of God. And yet he didn't consider that equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't seize it for himself. Rather, he, he gave and revealed that our God is a God who gives rather than seeks to receive. Right? And, and he, he then emptied himself, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And on just those first uh, few verses of this Christ hymn, we're getting a very strong and resounding reminder of the gospel, answering this question of who is this Jesus, this Christ King. He is fully God and he is fully human. And we've worked at that the last several weeks as to why that is important, right? That the divinity of God allows the sacrifice to be acceptable because it makes it perfect. The humanity of God uh, in Jesus allows us to know that he fully empathizes with our weakness and our temptations and making that sacrifice acceptable as well. But everything in those first few verses is this is who he is. And what we're gonna see today as we focus in on verse eight is a greater clarity to the question, why is he here? And what I want you to notice as we reread this today, verses five through 11, is there's a certain progression that takes place as you read through these verses, right? There's almost a descent, right? And what I mean is that it starts with this pre-incarnate Jesus, who's the nature of God, and then you see a descent to the earth, a descent into the flesh, a descent into servanthood, and that progression continues until it ends this Christ hymn with an exaltation, which is what's coming the next uh, few verses. But today, we get to the depths of that descent, and in that depth, we find the answer to our question, why is he here? So we'll read verses 5 through 11, but I want you to pay particular attention to verse 8. Let's pick up in verse five. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, look again at verse eight. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. All right, so this is the answer, right? In fact, let me just, just kind of simplify it for us. Verse eight is pretty, pretty clear. The first two lines are basically a summarization of the themes that we've already covered. Jesus is now in the appearance of a man and he humbled himself, right? It's, it's the humanity of Christ merging with the humility of Christ, which has been one of the dominant themes Paul has introduced in this section. The last two lines give us our answer. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is a very simple message. This is a very simple sermon today. You don't have multiple points. You don't have a lot of different intricacies, a lot of things that have to be explored. It's very into why did Jesus come? Why is he here? He came to die. That's it. It's very simple. And it's a question that has to be addressed and, and reflected upon for Christmas to have the fullness of the meaning that it intends to. Why is he here? He came to die, even death on a cross. But there's nothing like the cross. And that's where Christmas takes you, right? It takes you to the heart of the gospel. 
I mean, essentially, the gospel is telling us that, that God is a loving God who decides to reveal himself through the person of Jesus. We find this perfect revelation of what, what life is supposed to be, but at the same time, we see this way in which this sacrifice is made pleasing through uh, Jesus' divinity and also through his humanity. And through that death on the cross, we find grace and forgiveness. And through the empty tomb that is achieved by his death on the cross, we see that death itself is overcome and there is nothing like the cross. And we have to reflect upon it. It's why he came. He came to die even a death on the cross. And so when we begin to reflect upon that, what we begin to see is that the cross shapes our understanding of death. Right? It, it, it's through the cross that we begin to make sense of one of the most important and powerful questions we can ever wrestle with in human existence. Right? In fact, I want to read to you a quote that, that I found in researching this today. And it comes from encyclopedia.com, and, and I'll explain that context here in a little bit. But I thought it provided a, a very powerful summarization of the nature of us asking this question about death and how to make sense of it. Here's what it says. It says, regardless of one's religious background, it is in the presence of death that all humans find themselves face to face with the single greatest mystery of their existence. Does life extend beyond the grave? Whether one believes in a supernatural heavenly kingdom, the inescapable laws of karma, or a state of eternal bliss, death remains a dreadful force beyond one's control. For untold millions of men and women, the ceremonies of religion provide their only assurance that life goes on when the darkness of physical death envelops them. Why is he here? He came to die. There's nothing like the cross. And the more we understand the cross, the more we face our own understanding of death and what happens on the other side of it, a question that all of us ask. And so what I want to do this morning is to really engage that reality and try to accentuate that point that there really is nothing like the cross and allowing that to shape our understanding of one of these all-important questions that we find in understanding meaning of our own existence. And so what I want to do is, is to really kind of provide a quick survey of all the different worldviews or perspectives that you can really entertain when it comes to making sense of death and whether or not there is life beyond it. Okay, and so as I prepare to, to try to go into this, let me just offer a few disclaimers. Number one, this won't be exhaustive. Obviously, we don't have time, and, and nor do I have that sort of pride to think that I could do that for you. Um, and, it, and it's not through this lens of um, high uh, expertise, right? It's not like I'm the expert of every worldview and every religion. I'm not. But I do want to at least acknowledge there, there's some credibility in this discussion not just on research that was done for this message, but the training and education done in graduate school, and then even as a missions pastor, having a chance to visit numerous cultures and talk to people of different faiths, religious leaders of different faiths, and to hear firsthand their understanding of this all-important question. <clears throat> and so it's with that kind of background that I'm, I'm going to try to navigate some of these comparisons today. And I also want to say that by no means is this discussion meant to belittle uh, other worldviews or religions, right? Like, I, I believe we should respect uh, people and their cultures and the way in which they were raised, but I do intend 
to present this in a way that helps accentuate what I'm advocating for today, which is that there is nothing like the cross. Okay, and so let's, let's consider your options, shall we? Like, if you're going to try to make sense of death and existence and what happens after, what are your options? There's really two categories that you're going to fall in. The first one is going to assume that there is no creator, right? There is no design. There is no higher power. There is nothing divine, right? The second one is going to start with that premise that there is, and then there will be all these sub categories that we'll try to briefly address here in just a moment. But let's start with category one, right? One, one worldview, one option for you to make sense of life and death in this existence is to say there is no higher power and to really stand upon the, the shoulders of science, physics, evolutionary theory, right? And to ultimately just have the answer that there is nothing that happens beyond death, right? It's just the natural progression of how life evolves, and because there is nothing on the other side of death, death itself is nothing. We're just existing. That is an option. People gravitate to it because of the, the scientific aspect of it. People gravitate to it for a lot of different reasons. One reason I would submit to you this morning is that one of the reasons that this is appealing is because ultimately, where we real, whether we realize it or not, it allows us to be in control. Right? Because now I get to decide what is moral and immoral, what is right, what is wrong, what is fair, what is unfair, what is just, what is injustice. I'm the one that really kind of gets to sit in that seat and make my own determination of how life should work and rule a, a verdict on all these different options that are out there for this life. I get to assume that sort of control, and I get to assume that sort of control without fear of any consequences on the other side of death. That's part of what is alluring to it. It allows us to control something that we can't explain. And so people gravitate to that, but if we're going to be honest, it's still very much a minority view. Right? I mean, as that quote mentioned earlier, untold millions of men and women gravitate to this second category, that there is a higher power, that there is a creator. Right? There, in fact, that in and of itself, to me, speaks to some form of evidence. Ecclesiastes says it like this. He has set eternity in the hearts of mankind, right? There's this impulse that the human heart has to believe in life after death. And that in and of itself is evidenced by all the different religious worldviews that exist out there that subscribe to a God that is a creator, right? It's, it's there, and Ecclesiastes continues in that verse. He set eternity in the hearts of men, but man cannot fathom what he has done from beginning to end. So it's still a mystery, but we long for it. We desire it, so we're seeking to know what is life like on the other side of it. So you believe there's a creator, right? And that's where you enter into this, this op options, myriad of options of different religious beliefs. And so I'm going to hit on kind of the largest ones, the most uh, uh, talked about ones, I guess you could say. But again, it's not going to be exhaustive. And, and let's consider kind of some commonalities that some of them share with each other. First of all, you could start with Buddhism. And Buddhism, again, very concisely and very concretely, is going to teach that death is a transition into a rebirth, right? It's samsara is the word that speaks to this, this cycle of rebirth. And it's all predicated upon your previous decisions, your previous actions. This is where you get the idea of karma, right? And depending on how you lived in your life will basically determine what that rebirth looks like into a future life, right? The worse you live, then, then the worse the rebirth. The better you live, then the better 
the rebirth. And so what Buddhism actually teaches, it's, it's really the least like a religion of all the ones that we'll talk about today. It's more of a lifestyle, but it, at its core, what it really teaches is that every desire you have leads to suffering, right? It, it leads to a longing that can't be fulfilled. So you should work to cease of all desires, rid yourself of any sort of attachment to the material world so that therefore you distance yourself from suffering. And the more you can achieve that, to the extent that you no longer desire some form of a continuation of existence, then you achieve a Buddha-like state. And so that's, that's an option of how you make sense of death, this idea of karma and samsara. Now, Hinduism is very similar to that. It has this similar idea of karma, this similar projection of samsara. But what they try to achieve in Hinduism, obviously with a polytheistic view in many gods and many different paths, is to say that you can achieve moksha, which is another way of thinking maybe in, in our context of salvation, right? And, and there's a lot of details and nuances to this. Like there's, there's maybe a seven different layers to get to nirvana through this rebirth and this samsara process and it, seven of them going towards nirvana, seven of them going away. So a total of 14 and you could find yourself in all these different layers, again, based on how you lived in order to achieve that, that oneness with the deity in nirvana. Right, so very similar to Buddhism, but with a lot of different details and nuances to it. Then you get to the monotheistic worldviews. And there's a lot of commonality and similarities there. Right? If you start with Islam in particular, they're going to, to also say that death is a gateway into judgment. Right? That upon death, there is a day of judgment that will ultimately take place that will lead to either eternal bliss or eternal torment. Now, as you have conversations with Muslims, is as I have in numerous different countries and numerous different settings, here's how that typically is described. Here's how I've had it described to me on multiple occasions, right? At the end, on that day of judgment, your life is going to be weighed between the good and the bad, like scales. And if you did more good than bad, then you can anticipate eternal bliss. If you did more bad than good, then you can anticipate eternal torment. And when you follow up that discussion with, okay, well, how do I know if my life is more good or bad? More often than not, the answer is, Allah knows. You have no assurance. There is no guarantee. Only Allah knows. And only on that day will you find out. And no one else can do anything for you. It's an individual judgment that will result in either eternal bliss or eternal torment. This has similar foundations in Judaism, as we all know, right? As we can see this even in the Old Testament, this, this belief that the soul goes down to Sheol, right? And yet there's also a teaching of a resurrection of the dead and a day of judgment, as you see outlined in Daniel and several other places in the Old Testament that speak to that day of judgment and again, an anticipation of eternal bliss or eternal uh, uh, torment. And so the question then becomes, well, how do I know? And Judaism continues to wrestle with that. Now, before we, we try to revisit the cross, let me hit on a few other categories. Now, there are numerous other religions that, again, I'm not gonna get into today, but let me try to provide maybe another two or three categories that I think speak to different segments. Right, another group of worldviews would maybe speak to like animism and new age beliefs, right? And I'm gonna lump those together for a couple of reasons. So animism, folk religion, a lot of times what you see is very similar to new age, though it's manifest and is described very differently. But what I mean is the similarities that it typically is focused on how you can enrich this life, right? So folk religions, animistic religions, a lot of time are gonna focus on a sun god, a river god, a rain god, so that I can have the crops, flourish, I can have rain when I need it. It's all about enriching this life, which is similar to New Age philosophies, right? Now I'm going to subscribe to the universe and, and this universal power, this, 
energy that exists, and if I manifest good things, positive things, then the universe will reciprocate and bring positive things into my life. And so the more I can live with this positive energy, this positive aura, then that will enrich my life. Very little often said about death and the life that is to come. Now the last two categories that I wanna hit on kind of speak, I think, largely to our culture a lot of times, at least in the narrative. The first one would be pluralism, right? Pluralism is the idea that, okay, I've got all these different options. I've got this buffet of choices of worldviews and religion. So what I'm gonna do is I'm really just gonna choose what I like from each of them. I'm gonna take a plurality of different perspectives and different ideas. And so if I like what this one offers and I like what this one offers and I like what this one, I'm gonna kind of curate something new. This works so well in our culture because the mantra of our culture is what? You do you. It's your truth. Just let me do me. Right, so you can create whatever you wanna create and make it fit to whatever it is that you want. And it's very similar to the first category where there is no God because it assumes that same level of control and power, right? I get to go ahead and create whatever sort of morality, immorality that I want by picking and choosing all these different things because it's my truth, right? And I wanna be very direct in saying this while trying to maintain a certain level of understanding and respect, but from my vantage point, category one in this pluralistic view is possibly the most arrogant position you can take because it allows you to assume that power and that control. It allows you to say, I'm the one that's going to determine what's right and wrong for myself. I'm the one that's gonna refuse the idea that maybe, just maybe, there's another worldview that has shaped people's lives for thousands of years, but I'm somehow now more enlightened and can look down on that and determine what is actually right for myself. And if, if I don't like certain things, right, then I, I can just go ahead and, and eliminate them on my own. Right, which leads kind of this third view, which is universalism. Right, this view is that, you know what? It's hard to determine the difference between all these, so they all work. Every road leads to God. All roads lead to Rome. Believe whatever you wanna believe. We're all gonna get there, man. And we like this one because it's easy, and on the surface, it sounds uh, affirming of other people. But as I've said to you before, it, to me, creates the most illogical position and one of the most disturbing pictures of God you could ever create. Uh, we, we preached on this at length this summer when we were going through Revelation, and so I'm not gonna go into great detail again. If you want to have that conversation, we can go grab coffee. I can send you the link, but let me summarize it. The reason that one's so untenable, because what that's saying is that there is a creator who has offered up all these different worldviews and religions, and none of them teach that they all get there. None of them do. So this creator has intentionally given us options that naturally contradict each other to the point that we have seen thousands of years of bloodshed and conflict. So he's creating hostility on purpose. Not only that, he's confusing morality because none of them agree necessarily on what is ethical and what is unethical. He's confusing truth because they all claim to have a certain insight to truth. And not only that, he's eliminating justice because under this view, you can be as evil as you possibly want and still get to heaven. It's a very disturbing picture of God, right? And so we, we look at all these things and, and we think, man, if there's something I don't like, like if I don't like the idea that there could be hell, I can either just eliminate hell or I can eliminate God. And so all of these things, all these views are allowing us to try to pick and choose what is the way in which I'm gonna make sense of this question of death and what happens on the other side of it. Let me tell you what they all have in common. The reason I went to the links to explain some of those summarizations, here's what they all have in common. Every single one of them has a notion of justice. 
right? Like, like that's what is pulling your heart to find an answer. What is right? What is just? Right? That's what I was just saying, right? If, if I don't like the idea that there's a loving God that creates hell, I'll get rid of hell. I'll get rid of God because that seems unfair to me. That seems unjust to me. Is it right for me to tell other people how to, no, man, so you have your truth. That's what's fair. That's what's just. Or I'm going to pick one that claims truth, and then I'm going to say, this is how I find right living, by submitting to this religion's views and their ethics and their codes. Everything that draws our heart to one of those world's view is your heart's desire for justice and to understand what's right. Every single one of those perspectives have that in common. The other thing that it has in common, every single one of them puts the burden on you. Every single one. Right, so if I'm gonna eliminate God or if I'm gonna choose a plurality, then I'm the one that has the burden to figure out what justice is. Every other religion, if I'm gonna figure out how to break out of this cycle of rebirth, then it's how I live my life here. If I'm gonna please Allah, then it's how I live my life here. Every single one of those positions, the burden is on you. And then there's Jesus who the very nature of God doesn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage and doesn't say, come to me, I'm going to come to you. He empties himself, takes on the nature of a servant, is made in human likeness, humbles himself to the point of obedience even to death. There is nothing like the cross. Remember, death on a cross is not this natural progression, it's punishment. It's punitive. Think about what he was willing to endure. Right? I mean, crucifixion was, was often predicated or preceded by flogging and scourging and beating. It was public so that you would be mocked and ridiculed. It was slow, it was agonizing. It was a death reserved for foreigners and criminals. The crucifixion is the ultimate depiction of Jesus' degradation and the humility that he demonstrates. It is the depths that he is willing to go. There is nothing like the cross. And what is achieved in that pain, in that sacrifice, what is achieved in that ridicule is unbelievable. Right? It's there that we find redemption and reconciliation and restoration. I want to make sure that we understand at least a couple of things as we consider this this morning. What does it achieve and then what does it produce? Right? So when we look at the crucifixion and we look at the cross, what we see is that that burden that was on our shoulders shifts to him, and yet in that shifting, we find justice. We find the justice that our heart longs for and that God demands. Right? Consider Isaiah 52. <clears throat> I'm going to read this one to you. Isaiah 53, excuse me, verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God 
stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? What we see is that we're all sinners. There's, there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven and eternal bliss. God is too holy, too righteous. And so the cross absorbs the wrath that is intended for sin and therefore preserves the justice of God because sin deserves a punishment. It deserves a penalty. And that penalty was paid and the justice of God preserved but it was paid by Christ. Your sin, the iniquity of us all, is upon his shoulders. And that burden shifts. And so it achieves the justice of God, and it also achieves the mercy of God, the grace of God. Consider how it is explained to us in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 says, When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Let me say that again. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away. How has he taken it away, church? How do you find grace? How do you find mercy? How does he take away your shame? How does he take away your wounds? How does he take away your mistakes? How does he achieve these things? By nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The death that looms so large and looks over us with fear and trembling, Jesus defeats by the cross. So it achieves justice, it achieves mercy, it achieves victory, right? It tells us that your victory towards that everlasting bliss or whatever it needs to be described as is not achieved by merit, it is not achieved by your abilities, it is not achieved by any sort of effort that you can offer, it is only achieved by the cross. You find victory in the cross, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And then what does it produce in you? How does it change you when you really begin to understand the fullness of what it actually achieves? I came across this quote that was written by a Fred Sanders who offered this article in Christianity Today. I love the way he says this, and this helps, helps us kind of land the plane this morning. He says, the centrality of the cross changes everything. When you receive the good news that Jesus died for you, the result is like dropping a rock in a smooth pond. The ripples radiate outward to the farthest edges of reality. It's the death of Christ that enables us to die to ourselves. It's his death that justifies us before God's perfect righteousness, that sets us free and gives us courage to face persecution. The community centered on the cross is a great company of people reconciled to God and to each other. Here's the part I absolutely love. <clears throat> people centered on the cross know how to die, learn how to live, and love like they've been forever changed by the love they've received. <laughs> what does it produce in you? It teaches you how to die, how to live, and how to love. And that's exactly what the world needs right now. 
Those are exactly the sort of people that we need to become. You think about what's going on around us. You look at what this world is subjected to and the life that we're living in. I mean, you think about the stress of the pandemic. Think about political unrest and racial unrest and a culture that continues to pull apart at the seams over issues of morality and hostility about other people's views. And that's just what's happening around us. What about within us? At the loneliness we feel, the temptations that we feel, the abuses we've endured, the grief that we carry. And if we ever needed to find a way to learn how to die and how to live and how to love, it's now. And so how do you do that? What, what, what does Christmas compel you to do? Well, I tell you, it tells you to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. My hope is that you'll be encouraged to run, man. You'll be encouraged to run the race that's marked out for you, the life that's before you. You run by fixing your eyes on Jesus. When you look at him, you see the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God. When you think about how could you find the resolve and, and the strength to live that sort of life, to die well, to live well, to love well, you'd consider him who endured such opposition at the hands of sinners. You'd think about the cross and you wouldn't grow weary and lose heart because there is nothing like the cross. It was the summer of 2007 when I was in a world religions class in seminary and my professor, uh, Daniel Jararaj, it's very hard to pronounce his last name, but he's an incredible man, uh, and he was from India. And in many respects, was the perfect professor to teach on world religions. Uh, I may have some of the details of his background off, but if my memory serves me correctly, his father was a craftsman of sorts in an area of India that was highly polytheistic. He grew up Hindu, and his father, as a craftsman, was often uh, tasked and commissioned to create idols that would be placed in various Hindu temples in their area. And because of his craftsmanship, he would also be commissioned to build things for other religious institutions like mosques, and he was often building these different symbols of religious beliefs. Their home, in many respects, was like this hub of religious worldviews, this epicenter. And so my professor was exposed to all of it and had a chance to see up close and personal all these different things that people believed and how they believed. And he always spoke very kindly and fairly about different worldviews. He was very soft-spoken and fair. And then one day, as he was kind of sharing a little bit more of his background and his story, somebody in class asked him, how did you become a Christian growing up in that environment? And he stopped for a moment, and he took a few breaths, got his thoughts collected, and then with a very subtle smile, he said these words that I'll never forget. He said, there's nothing like the cross. 
the cross always stands out in every culture. There's nothing like it. <laughs> so what child is this, church? It's Christ the King. Why is he here? He came to die. Even death on a cross for you. So how will you receive him? Will you respond with this cautious hesitation, worried that he might interrupt whatever you are already doing? Are you gonna come to this manger scene thinking more about what you will get rather than who? Are you gonna stand at the door and guard cautiously, looking for that opportunity to say, you know what, I'm just not interested? Or will you run with enthusiasm and excitement and welcome him in? Let him dwell with you and you with him. Experiencing that justice, that mercy, that victory. How will you receive him? This is Christ the King who has come to die for all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we acknowledge, Father, there are so many times that we fail to even ask why you're here and what you've done for us. And so this Christmas season, God, may we truly celebrate the fact that you have taken on all of our sin, all of our iniquities, the burden upon our shoulders is upon you. And by your wounds, we're healed. <laughs> we find justice that our heart longs for. We find the mercy that our soul needs. And we find the victory that gives us hope. So forgive us for the times, God, that we don't receive you as we should. Let us run to the cross. Let us run to your throne with that enthusiasm, that excitement. Let us welcome you in this Christmas season. Celebrate the most unsuspecting of symbols, the most mysterious beacons of hope. Let's cling to the cross. Help us to fix our eyes on you, God, that in this season we would be people who wouldn't grow weary, who wouldn't lose heart, but we would be a people who have learned what it means to die live and to love because you've done all those things for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.